Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 1st, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we turn to the front page of today's Gazette, which is an article entitled, Our Strange, Strange is in quotation marks, Economy. Corridor growth continues in 2023 amid labor shortage and inflation. By Marissa Payne of the Gazette. New developments break ground as supply chain delays threaten materials needed to build them. Hospitals and manufacturers expand despite a shortage of workers. New ventures get bank loans, even as interest rates rise. At the same time, nonprofits are seeing a record demand for food as inflation soars and a pandemic aid ends. As the nation emerged from the worst of COVID-19, a strange economy has gripped the nation of grocery shoppers, commuters, home buyers, and charities, among many others. And leads to the question, will it get any better in the new year? State economic experts say any potential economic downturn in 2023 is likely to be relatively brief in Iowa, but there's ultimately not a way to know exactly what lies ahead. In a meeting in December of the Iowa Revenue Estimating Conference, the three-member panel projected a slight dip in state revenues, but not to the extent previously feared. As always, there are many variables at play, said a panel member, Jennifer Acton, with the nonpartisan Iowa Legislative Services Agency. While there are no telltale signs of a future recession, many economists indicate that the 2023 economy may have a difficult time. Craig Paulson, director of the Iowa Department of Management, said the Iowa and U.S. economies remain in a state hard to predict. Tentative relief in inflation may mean a decreased chance of recession, although recession chances are still elevated, he said. While there are no telltale signs of a future recession, many economists indicate that the 2023 economy may have a difficult time. The panel estimated state revenue will exceed $9.62 billion in fiscal 2023, the current state budget year that ends June 30, 2023. That's a 1.9% drop from the previous budget year, but less than the 2.7% drop the panel estimated in October. In fiscal 2024, the next state budget year that starts July 1st, there will be minimal revenue growth. The panel estimated revenue will be just more than $9.63 billion, an increase of just more than $10 million, or 0.1% over the current year. Overall, the state is an incredibly strong financial position and is well-situated to manage whatever futures the circumstances dictate, Paulson said. I continue to be optimistic that any downturn will be weathered, and at least in Iowa, it will be shallow and relatively short. Peter Orizem, an Iowa State University economics professor, said the worker shortage is disrupting the supply chain and contributing to an inflationary environment, compounding the effects of interest rates continuing to rise. We haven't been able to replace our lost workers at the same rates as other states, Orizem said. That'll challenge Iowa's economic growth, he said, and those uncertainties will wear on individuals, diminishing their interest in purchasing big-ticket items such as houses, cars, and durable goods. So far, Orizem said he doesn't see the unemployment rate in Iowa as much of an issue, even if employers end up slowing labor demand should the economy struggle. The bigger challenge, Orizem said, is a lack of people wanting to work in a robust labor market. Immigrants who would often fill voids have either been shut out because of pandemic border closures or because of the state's unwelcoming stance toward them, he said. Having fewer workers who aren't producing enough to meet consumer demand is fueling record high inflation, Orizem said. It's a really strange economy overall, Orizem said. Unless we can come up with a way of fixing our undersupply of labor, we're going to be facing continued restrictions on supplies and goods and services. Iowa's workforce woes hold true locally. 
Kirkwood Community College recently released results from the Skills 2024 survey, a report compiled from about 140 area businesses regarding future regional workforce needs. Three common themes emerged in the survey, which was distributed to employers across the college's service area of Benton, Cedar, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, Lynn, and Washington counties. Predominant concerns were a lack of qualified candidates, small labor pool for open roles, recruitment and retention struggles, Kirkwood Vice President of Continuing Education and Training Services Jasmine Almoyed said in a statement that regional employers are facing what may be the most constrained labor market in recent memory. If a business can't find the right employees, it becomes detrimental to their overall success and can destabilize the organization, Almoyed said. If our workforce issues are not addressed, it could be damaging to the regional economy. To combat these issues, according to the report, employers must invest in employee retention strategies such as culture assessments and offering professional development opportunities. Businesses also must take a more active role in directing training, education, and apprenticeship programs. Housing prices rose fairly rapidly earlier in the pandemic, or as M said, in part because fewer were being built. Now, he said the market is constrained by the rising cost of construction materials and interest rates and mortgage rates more than doubling what they were a year ago. All of that will make it more expensive for people to finance their houses, or as M said, so he expects a weak housing market in 2023. That creates downward pressure on housing prices, or as M said. I think housing prices may moderate a little bit, but the actual mortgage amounts may be going up because interest rates will rise faster than housing prices will go down. Despite the building booms, nonprofits are seeing increased need after pandemic aid programs have sunset. The number of homeless people living outdoors has quadrupled in Lynn County since July 2019 and has more than tripled from 33 to 107, the first time in recent memory the number surpassed 100. In July 2012, the total number was 11. And food pantries in recent years have seen a consistent growth in demand, challenging some eastern Iowa food banks to keep up. Need has been high since the onset of COVID-19 in March 2020, but the end of pandemic-based subsidies of food stamps in Iowa this year only pushed the need even higher. Chase with United Way said the safety net or basic needs are always in demand, including access to food and shelter, but the pandemic and 2020 derecho have heightened those long-standing issues, especially housing access. Record high inflation is pressuring people's pocketbooks, challenging their ability to keep food on the table, a roof over their heads, and gas in their cars. It's just grown worse, Chase said. Nonprofits are hamstrung by the lack of extra COVID-19 relief funds to meet people's needs, though they are pooling resources to try to better collaborate and support households with rent and utility assistance. We have to stop putting band-aids on the issues and look at some of the solutions that may be long-term solutions, Chase said. She said there's been a recognition that for individuals already struggling to keep up, sometimes the systems just to get help just add hurdles, forcing people with limited resources to call around to numerous different organizations with varying degrees of success. However, Chase said she's hopeful there is a paradigm shift underway as companies, nonprofits, and government agencies work together on solutions and recognize the need to meet people where they're at. By taking a broader community approach, Chase said she hopes to bust the barriers individuals face to growing in their own economic mobility and safety net. Those small steps are going to build and build and grow, Chase said. Turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading in the news. Agencies file bills ahead of session. With the Iowa legislative session only a week away, state agencies are proposing bills they'd like lawmakers to take up when they meet January 9th in Des Moines. 
Some notable pre-filed bills proposed by state agencies include children would be required to ride in rear-facing car seats until the age of three while weighing up to 30 pounds and required to ride in a safety seat until age eight. Pointing a laser at an aircraft would become a crime under proposed legislation by the Iowa Public Defense Department. And only hands-free use of a mobile device would be allowed under a bill proposed by the State Public Safety Department. Tito's Vodka, new Iowa favorite. Iowa has a new favorite liquor, according to sales reports from the State Alcoholic Beverages Division. Tito's Vodka dethroned Black Velvet Canadian Whiskey as the top-selling liquor brand in the state. Black Velvet has held the number one spot since at least 2012, when the state began reporting the top brands. Iowans also set the third consecutive record for liquor sales in the last fiscal year. Sales topped $431 million between July 2021 and July 2022, a 3.75% increase over last year's record. The Alcoholic Beverages Division, Iowa's state-run liquor wholesaler, reported $120.6 million in profits. Profits go to the State General Fund, Substance Abuse Education, and Economic Development. Attorney General Settles with Jewel Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller reached a settlement with e-cigarette maker Jewel Labs, Inc. over allegations the company marketed to Iowa youths under 18. The company will pay $5 million over four years and change its advertising and retail practices, Miller's office said. The money paid to Iowa will be used to promote education and resources for quitting e-cigarette use. Miller was part of a 2018 panel organized by Jewel to research e-cigarettes. The group disbanded and Miller's involvement ended in 2018. Medical Marijuana Program Grows Thousands more Iowans joined the state's medical marijuana program in 2022. The program has 14,466 registered cardholders, close to double the 7,865 in November of last year. Sales at Iowa's five dispensaries were more than $10 million. The board governing the program said the state should allow more licensed dispensaries to keep up with the growing demand. State law currently allows for five dispensaries, and some patients in the program have to drive long distances to those dispensaries. The board also proposed removing sales tax from sales and changing state law to allow Iowa cannabis companies to take business expense deductions for state income tax. Under the heading, they said, We did it our way. We never compromised on our values and principles. That is enormously satisfying to me. I'm so thankful to my staff and impressed with their quality of work, their professionalism, and their dedication. Outgoing Democratic Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller reflecting on his 40 years in office. And, I'm grateful that Title 42 remains in place to help deter illegal entry at the U.S. southern border. But make no mistake, this is only a temporary fix to a crisis that President Biden and his administration have ignored for two years. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds on the Supreme Court decision to keep Title 42 in place. Under the heading Odds and Ends, TV reporter goes viral. An Iowa TV sports reporter found viral fame when he pitched in for an early morning sub-zero weather report. KWWL's Mark Woodley posted clips of his sarcastic quips and commentary during the newscast to Twitter, which garnered more than 200,000 likes and 30 million views in the week since it was posted and made national headlines. The clothing store Raygun got in on the action, creating Mark Woodley-themed t-shirts the same week. Veterans Trust Fund runs dry. A state trust fund that extends support to low-income veterans ran dry in 2022 for the first time in its 10-year history. The Iowa Veterans Trust Fund receives $3 million a year from state appropriations and the Iowa Lottery. 
An expanded pool of eligible veterans and inflation-induced cost increases created higher-than-expected costs for the program. Under the heading Water Cooler, COVID cases fall. Iowa's COVID-19 cases fell again in the week ending Wednesday, with the state reporting 2,148 cases, compared to 3,493 cases the previous week. Hospitalizations also fell by 11 percent, down to 243 from 272 in the same span. And IHSAA classification changes. The Iowa State Board of Education will decide on a large shakeup to Iowa high school's athletics classification standards. More than half of Iowa schools voted in the past week to change high school football classifications to consider socioeconomic factors. Under their proposal, the Iowa High School Athletic Association would take 40% of a district's number of students on free and reduced lunch and subtract it from the total number to determine new classifications. Turning to the Insight page, we have uh, several guest columns, Needs in the New Year, Food, Housing, and Volunteers. Our first guest column is from Catherine Shea. Catherine Shea. Uh, MSN ARNP is a board president of NIMI Lynn County and she writes let people know they're not alone the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others Gandhi volunteerism is an altruistic and admirable behavior volunteerism is also challenging requires commitment and can be exhausting as many nonprofit organizations recruiting and retaining volunteers can be difficult and remains one of our greatest challenges in the new year NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Lynn County, is nothing without our volunteers. Our volunteers lead our evidence-based support groups and programs. Volunteers provide educational opportunities in the community. Volunteers help with outreach events. Volunteers answer our phone and respond to emails. We rely on a volunteer board of directors to oversee the organization. Our volunteers are often individuals who have their own lived experience with mental health or someone they know and love. As outgoing president, I've reflected on my own volunteer experience with NAMI Lynn County. In many ways, volunteering in a leadership position is like a second full-time job. Striking some sort of balance between a full-time job, family life, self-care, and volunteering is challenging. So then why do I do it? Like many of our volunteers, my why is rooted in my own experience and those I love. I have struggled with my own mental health since childhood. Growing up, those around me also struggled with mental health. My own mental health journey has given me purpose to help others know recovery is possible. My experience led to a career as a psychiatric provider and dedicated volunteer for NAMI Lynn County. I hope to help others before they struggle and lift up those who know the struggle. The next guest column is from Paula Land, Executive Director of the Catherine McCauley Center. And Paula Land writes, Cedar Rapids Housing Crisis, a Barrier for Refugees. Nearly three years into a pandemic, life may have returned to a new normal for some, but as the cost of living skyrockets, a fast-growing number of Iowans are struggling to maintain housing and food security. Combined with catastrophic catastrophes like a derecho, global conflict, and inflation costs, rates of homelessness are climbing. In fact, the latest point-in-time study showed that homelessness is up 230% in Lynn County since 2019. Shortages of affordable housing and food supplies are two factors greatly impacting the community going into the new year. Cedar Rapids housing crisis is a multidimensional barrier for low-income populations served by the Catherine McCauley Center's Refugee Settlement Program and Housing Services for Women. Securing housing is challenging for those with a criminal record or eviction or struggling with mental health and substance use, as many women who find support at CMCR. On top of a scarcity of affordable 
and available homes for rent, clients aren't meeting the stricter eligibility and income requirements landlords are enforcing. Similarly, newly arriving refugees don't yet have a social security card, proof of employment, or credit history until after resettling, and often their family size exceeds landlords' capacity. Resettlement staff are also seeing rental applications requiring a monthly income of at least six times the cost of rent. Even once employment is obtained, the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment is $625, while Iowa's minimum wage rate remains $7.25 per hour. At the same time, many clients rely on CMC's food pantry, but suppliers are experiencing shortages while the demand is rising. Early in the pandemic, the USDA issued emergency assistance waivers allowing states to increase household SNAP benefits, formerly called food stamps, to the maximum allowance. When Iowa's assistance ended in April 2022, the state's total food benefits decreased by 43%. Since then, CMC's daily pantry usage is up 15% and the average cost of orders is 40% higher, making it increasingly difficult to keep shelves stocked and to offer the culturally appropriate foods that refugee and immigrant clients depend on. And a guest column from Mike Barnhart, CEO of Horizons, a family service alliance. Barnhart writes, the need for meals will only increase. I want to thank the Corridor community for your help in feeding vulnerable homebound seniors. The last few years have been especially challenging. Together, we have weathered both the COVID-19 pandemic and the derecho. Without your help, we would not have been able to serve those who rely on us for nutritional and social support. However, the number of seniors who need Meals on Wheels continues to grow. In the last 12 months, older adults in the corridor receiving home-delivered meals from Horizons increased 20%. This increased need, coupled with the rising cost of food and labor to prepare and deliver meals, is leading to an untenable situation. Recent inflation is particularly devastating to our clients. The majority get by on a fixed income of less than $1,200 per month. The need for senior meals is only going to grow in the coming years. The 2020 census revealed that in the last decade, the population of adults over 65 years of age has grown by over a third. By 2040, it is projected that older adults will account for nearly a quarter of the United States population. Iowa is home to over half a million adults in this category. People receive Meals on Wheels for a number of reasons. They may be food insecure, recovering from hospitalization, living with long-term illness, or experiencing frailty and isolation with age. Some are referred by a neighbor or adult children, or a medical professional will reach out to us for a nutritional intervention. Whatever the circumstance, we connect with each client to determine how best to meet their needs, including referral to other organizations where necessary. The recently launched More Than a Meal program leverages the daily well checks that take place at each delivery. This program monitors the conditions of at-risk clients and identifies potential hazards before they progress to the need for hospitalization or out-of-home placements. Unfortunately, little philanthropy is dedicated to aging adults. Less than 1% of the grant funds from America's largest foundations are given to causes related to aging. This makes our work particularly difficult as we are constantly under both pressure to raise enough money to maintain necessary service levels and the pressure to increase service levels to meet the increasing need. Let's not forget those who have walked before us. Help us end senior hunger and go to horizonsfamily.org to donate or volunteer. Another guest column written by the Cedar Rapids School Board, Public Schools in Iowa Need Your Voice. School funding isn't a topic that likely stirred many lively discussions around the holiday dinner table, but as the 2023 Iowa legislative session is about to begin, we need to consider the importance of the work being done in our public schools to prepare our students for a future that includes community engagement, post-secondary study, or workforce participation. Our schools are struggling with inflationary costs, pandemic recovery costs, 
and with providing competitive salaries for teachers and other staff. If our students are a priority, the Iowa Legislature must provide adequate school funding. We are at a critical point in state funding to our public schools. In the 1970s and 1980s, Iowa was above the national average in per-pupil spending. Data shows us that more recently, in the 2018-19 school year, we had plunged $1,254 below the national average. Since 2014, funding for Iowa public schools grew by 11.6%, while nationally spending rose by nearly 20%. We are losing ground and our students deserve better from us. Did you know that Nebraska is the only Midwest state doing less for their students than Iowa? Did you know that Iowa is ranked 40th nationally in per-pupil expenditure increase? What has happened to our pride in Iowa public schools? We can do better. What does that funding allow us to do? For starters, it allows us to attract a high-quality workforce. Currently, many districts, including our own, struggle to hire bus drivers and paraeducators. In order to compete with the private sector, we must be able to pay competitive wages, not only for our support staff, but also for our teachers and administrators. There's a staff shortage across the state. There are currently more than 4,400 positions posted on the Teach Iowa website. That means thousands of Iowa children are not getting the best education possible. None of us would want that for our own child. We can do better. We expect the governor to propose another school voucher plan this session. While the details remain to be seen, we know that any shift of funds to a voucher program will take your tax dollars away from public schools. This is especially perilous as the 2022 tax cuts are being implemented. Four years from now, it is estimated that there will be a $1.8 billion revenue loss due to the tax plan passed last year. Since public school funding is the majority of the state budget, we can expect the impact of the tax cuts to be significant on our public schools. Coupled with the potential shifting of your tax dollars to vouchers, our public schools are at risk. We can do better. We need your voice to help continue the tradition of high-quality public schools in Iowa. Please know which Iowa legislators represent you. Call them. Email them. Tell them we can do better. Encourage them to provide the funding required to return Iowa schools to their place as number one in the nation. We also have a guest column from Tiffany O'Donnell, mayor of Cedar Rapids, who is serving her first term, which began in 2022 and runs through 2025. Mayor O'Donnell writes, 2022 saw great progress in CR. What a year, Cedar Rapids. As we turn the page on a year of progress, it is exciting to think about what's next for Cedar Rapids. In one year as mayor, I am proud to say that this city doesn't just talk about our future. We have a growth mindset that is turning vision into reality. Economic development efforts brought unprecedented growth in 2022, more than $643 million in new and existing business. New additions like Sub-Zero Group and FedEx joined proud homegrown companies like Altor for Inc. and Worley Warehousing expansion projects, with more on the way. The city's commitment to housing fostered $147 million in investment in 2022, resulting in more than 600 new units and more to come. New affordable and market-rate housing projects under construction like Annex on the Square, The Hub, First and First West, and many others are getting us to our goal of 7,000 new units by 2030. While focused on the future, we have also made tremendous progress on challenges of the past. From derecho to flood protection in the pandemic, our city is leveraging local, state, and federal support to move past these disasters as quickly as possible. A few impressive statistics. This year, crews worked hard to tackle lingering tree stumps along city streets, with nearly 90% of that work now complete. More than 4,100 newly planted trees stand ready to provide shade for future generations as part of the Relief Plan. A record number of flood protection projects are complete or underway. 
To date, nearly two miles of permanent flood protection are in place. About 25% of the walls, levees, and underground protection that will keep Cedar Rapids safe from future floods. These projects not only protect us from flooding, they make our city a better place to live by adding new green spaces and amenities that people of all ages can enjoy. We can be proud and confident that these investments will benefit Cedar Rapids for many years to come. This year, we also made significant road improvements through paving our for progress. Crews completed major projects like O Avenue Northwest, Oakland Road Northeast, C Street Southwest, and 12th Avenue Southeast. I want to express my admiration and gratitude for the community's patience and commitment in supporting all this work. With the help of the American Rescue Plan Act, the city also was able to make important investments to help nonprofits serving our community. These organizations played a vital role in supporting those most impacted by the pandemic. We are fortunate to have a strong network of nonprofits in our community and partnerships with organizations like Kirkwood Community College, which are already leveraging these investments to accelerate our community's growth. ARPA funds also were dedicated to organizations supporting our growing immigrant community, arts and culture, social service agencies lifting up those experiencing homelessness and mental health support, among others. Now we focus on our next great chapter. We are in a position, uninterrupted by disaster, to prove how incredible Cedar Rapids can be. I am confident we will rise to the occasion. In the year ahead, we'll be moving several high-caliber quality-of-life projects forward. This includes new amenities in every quadrant, like Connect CR, improvements at Cedar Lake and the Alliant Energy Lightline Bridge over the Cedar River, downtown entertainment at First and First West, a new Westside Library and Resource Center, Cedar River Recreation, and an updated Greenway plan. We also will be asking for your input as we update the downtown vision and plan for a multi-generational recreation complex. Stay tuned for ways to be part of the plan. None of this would be possible without a talented team working on behalf of our community. You have a smart, strategic, and collaborative city council in place. We work alongside the incomparable city manager, Jeff Pomerantz. His tireless commitment to the city and the amazing staff he and his teams have assembled give us every confidence that our best days are in front of us. It truly is an honor to serve as mayor every day. Thank you. We are writing an incredible story together. It's time for the next chapter. Happy New Year. And turning to the community letters and also today's editorial cartoon from a cartoonist, Joe Heller of Green Bay. The cartoon depicts old man 2022 holding his scythe and looking at his 401k which with an arrow pointing down. And he says to baby New Year, who stands with his 2023 sash, his top hat on a sad look on his face, old man 2022 says, sorry kid, but I can't afford to retire. The first letter is from John Lawrence Hansen of Marion. More trash and fewer options with lower fees. What is our moral obligation for the trash we make? Garbage is a strange gift we bequeath to future generations. It seems like we've been getting away with ever cheaper dumping, thus encouraging more trash. On December 21st, the Gazette reported on tipping fees and the future of trash in Lynn County. The current fee is $42 a ton. The baseline fee in 1994 was $35. The price, in fact, has gone down. Using the Federal Reserve Bank's inflation calculator, the 1994 fee would be $69.51 in today's dollars. Perhaps the listed alternatives to landfills are more affordable upon re-examination? Until consumers pay an upfront fee at the time of purchase for goods destined for the heap, there is little felt consequence in our culture of planned obsolescence. John Lawrence Hansen of Marion. The next letter is from Chet Sullivan of Marion. Solar energy requires vast amounts of land. In his recent letter, Fred Hubler pointed out, there is growing awareness that industrial wind and solar require large areas, which means energy must be transmitted over greater distances. 
What he means by greater distances can be understood if we consider what it would take to replace the once operating and reliable 600 megawatt Duane Arnold Energy Center with solar and batteries. To reliably supply 600 megawatts 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, would require a 7,200 megawatt solar farm covering 36,000 acres and a 13,200 megawatt hour battery covering 132 acres. This is for optimal weather conditions. However, here in Iowa, we can go for days without seeing the sun. This means that the above numbers are vastly underestimating the actual amount of land and transmission requirements for dependence on this renewable energy. Chet Sullivan of Marion. Next, Bob Opliger of Iowa City writes, Ashley Hinson can't have it both ways. For those who don't know the definition of duplicitous, here it is, Ashley Hinson. Representative Hinson wants to have it both ways. She included 13 earmarks worth $26 million in the recent budget bill and then voted against it because it was bloated. I look forward to her claiming credit for the projects, even though she voted against them. It's a hypocritical stunt she's pulled before and I'm sure will pull again. Bob Opler of Iowa City. The next letter is from Pete Looney of Marion. Recognize religious meaning of Christmas. I'm glad you folks at the Gazette promote Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and Ramadan and other celebrations that are important to various religions, but I miss the days when the Gazette wouldn't hesitate to shout out the reason for the season on the front page of the Christmas Day edition, the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, Christmas is the day the world celebrates this important event. The celebration goes way, way deeper than pretty lights and gift-giving. There's a reason why there are so many Christianity-based churches in Cedar Rapids and the Gazette's circulation area. Some polls say 64% of Americans associate their beliefs with Christianity. It's probably a higher percentage here in Iowa. Why not show appropriate respect just this one date every year and mention the birth of Jesus? You can start this new tradition next year, please. Pete Looney of Marion. Next, Peter Hansen of Iowa City writes, Reynolds' freedoms different from FDR's. One of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's most famous speeches was his Four Freedoms speech, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. FDR's New Deal did much to fulfill these freedoms and improve the lives of tens of millions of Americans. Had Governor Kim Reynolds given a Four Freedoms speech, it probably would have included freedom from vaccinations, freedom from masks, freedom from social distancing, and freedom from scientific evidence. The legislation she signed into law also did much to fulfill these freedoms, but sadly, increased numbers of hospitalizations and deaths were probably a result. Peter Hansen of Iowa City. And the final letter from Colleen Henderson of Iowa City. Ulrich's column offers much that's needed. Thank you for Kurt Ulrich's column, and thank you, Kurt Ulrich, for what I look for each Sunday. Hoping this is the right Sunday. A little bit of peace, of nature, random thoughts, memories, humanity. Who doesn't need that? I do. Since I pass the paper on, I always make a copy so I can enjoy it again sometime. Colleen Henderson of Iowa City. You are listening to the recording of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 1st, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. We have another notice from Cedar Rapids. Dennis Walrob, age 77, died Thursday, December 29th and Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service of Cedar Rapids Handling Arrangements. George Thomas Cavanaugh, age 91, of Cedar Rapids, died peacefully on December 29th at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Massive Christian burial by the Reverend John Seda at 11 a.m. Friday, January 6th at St. Pius X Catholic Church. Visitation 10 to 11 a.m. preceding Mass. Burial with Phil Military Funeral Honors follows at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service in Cedar Rapids is caring for the family. 
George honorably served aboard the USS Iowa BB-61 during the Korean War. He was likely volunteering at St. Pius X, the church he was proudly a charter member of, where he might be tarring the church roof, painting inside the school, mowing the lawn, or shoveling snow. He also gave countless hours to the American Legion Marion Post 298 and VFW Post 788. He worked for 39 years at Downing Box Company, later becoming Longview Fiber Company. He was a lifelong member of the American Legion Post and the VFW Post, and when he did decide to take time to relax, you'd find him traveling all over Iowa with his buddies on the American Cancer Society Golf Pass. Gerda Grasser, age 93, of Amana, passed away Friday, December 30th, at Colonial Manor in Amana. Funeral service, 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 2nd, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation, with a visitation to begin at 10 a.m. Burial will be held at a later date at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Gerda worked at Amana Refrigeration and Shantz Furniture. She was a member of First Lutheran Church. She loved to travel, knit, and cane chairs. She helped cane the largest rocking chair in the world, which is in Amana, Iowa. Haley Bernadette Schmidtke, born Haley, Haley Bernadette Gorman, age 42, passed away Monday, December 26th. Her visitation will be held from 1 to 2.15 p.m. Wednesday, January 4th at Unity Center of Cedar Rapids, followed by her memorial service at 2.30 p.m. A celebration of life will also take place in Southern Oregon in early 2023. The purest example of strength that is softness, openness to experience, and surrender to the unknown, Haley balanced the precarious state that is wanting so much to live, all while contending with the closeness of death. She did so with unbelievable grace and humor, acknowledging the truth of pain, what but with the conviction that suffering was an option when she never seemed to choose. Though cancer amplified her quest for joy, she didn't need a life-altering diagnosis to give herself permission to treat herself to pistachio ice cream or sandwiches, to enjoy the pleasures of a perfectly ripe peach or tomato, to luxuriate in a quiet morning stillness with a cat in her lap and a book in her hands, or to put herself in the way of beauty. Marilyn Helen Heckel, age 65, formerly of, of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Shellsburg, passed away peacefully on Sunday, December 25th at Mercy Medical Center. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 5th at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Celebration of Life Service will be 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 6th at Brosh Chapel. Private family inurement will be held in St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery, Cedar Rapids, at a later date. Marilyn worked at Amana Refrigeration for nearly 47 years. She enjoyed traveling, dancing, going to casinos, especially Las Vegas, and spending time with her family. Michael Newcomb, 74, of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, December 23rd, at Mechanicsville Specialty Care. As per Michael's wishes, private services will be held at a later date in the spring. Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids is caring for Michael and his arrangements. Michael worked at Quaker Oats for many years, and Mike and good friend Don Brimmer worked at Nukes Auto Sales from 2003 to 2013. He enjoyed traveling to Florida and spending time with his many friends. Samuel E. Haig, 71, of Cedar Rapids, died peacefully surrounded by his family on December 23rd. He worked for many years in Sioux City, Iowa as an accountant, or a bean counter in his words, before becoming executive vice president at United Fire and Casualty in Cedar Rapids. Through the years, Sam enjoyed fishing with his kids and grandkids, biking around town even in the winter months, playing card games with lots of banter and table talk, cribbage, spades, and euchre, attending Bible study groups, watching his grandsons play sports, attending Iowa basketball games, and golfing with his college buddies. 
Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7th at Salem United Methodist Church, 3715 33rd Avenue Southwest, Cedar Rapids, followed by a reception. Joyce Irene Fritz, born, born Joyce Irene McLeod, age 89, of Cedar Rapids, died peacefully at home with family on December 16th. A memorial service will begin at 11 a.m. Friday, January 6th at Bethany Lutheran Church, located at 2202 Forest Drive Southeast, Cedar Rapids. The family will greet others touched by Joyce's life at 10 a.m. prior to the service. A burial will take place later this spring. Gerald Eugene Topping, known as Jerry, passed away Friday, December 23rd, after a long battle with pneumonia. A visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 3rd, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, 520 Wilson Avenue Southwest in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will take place at 1 p.m. Wednesday, January 4th, at the funeral home. Burial with military honors will follow at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Jerry worked for years as manager at Eagles before becoming a custodian at Freedom Group and Fiserv, then coming back to work at Hy-Vee part-time before retirement. Jerry served honorably as a mail clerk in Germany during the Vietnam War, bringing his wife and two children with him. Donald Joseph Mantor, age 78, of Cedar Rapids, died Saturday, December 17th, at home after a valiant fight with COPD and cancer. A memorial service will be held at a later date and will be announced when arranged. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids are assisting the family. Don served in the U.S. Army during the time of the Vietnam War, where he did a tour of duty. After completing his service, he lived and worked in Germany from 1972 to 76 as a civilian. Upon returning to Iowa, he tried his hand at various occupations before finding his niche in advertising sales. His voice was an asset in doing that for 30-plus years. He was also an arm, armchair coach for the Hawkeyes and a huge rock and roll fan, in particular from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, going to any and all concerts that he could. He especially loved Elvis. He never realized his dream to visit Graceland, but he was lucky enough to attend one of Elvis's concerts, as well as see Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin perform. Robert H. Fleming, age 68, of Hiawatha, died December 18th at St. Luke's Transitional Rehab. Funeral services will be held Thursday, January 5th at 3 p.m. with visitation at 2.30 p.m. It will be at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Church in Hiawatha, 1350 Lindhurst Drive, Hiawatha. There will be a celebration of life following the service at Sammy's Lounge on Center Point Road at 4.30 p.m. Mark Strait, age 62, of Central City, passed away on Tuesday, December 27th at his home in Central City. Family will greet friends from 1 to 2 p.m. on Wednesday, January 4th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Central City, with memorial service to follow at 2 p.m. at the funeral home. An ermit will take place at Mount Clark Cemetery at a later date. Mark was the owner-operator of Mark's Underground in Central City. When he wasn't working, he enjoyed the outdoors, hunting, fishing, cooking on the smoker, grilling, and being with family and friends. William Farmer, known as Bill, age 72, of Cedar Falls, died peacefully at Allen Hospital on December 29th. During the Vietnam War, Bill served his country as a conscientious objector, first as a teacher at St. John's School in Waterloo, and then as an orderly at Allen Hospital. This experience inspired him to pursue a nursing career, and he graduated from Allen College of Nursing in 1977, one of two men in his graduating class. Bill enjoyed his career at Allen and greatly appreciated his treasured colleagues and mentors. After retiring from Allen Hospital, Bill enjoyed traveling with Mary and spent many great mornings with friends at Cup of Joe in downtown Cedar Falls. A visitation will be held at Richardson Funeral Home on Monday, January 2nd from 4 to 7 p.m. with a rosary at 3.45 p.m. 
The Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10 a.m. Tuesday, January 3rd at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Cedar Falls. A lunch for all will follow with burial at Greenwood Cemetery. Memorial donations may be made to the Allen Foundation or St. Patrick Catholic Church. The Reverend Marvin L. Enan, age 85, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Thursday, November 17, 2022, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will be held at 3 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Marion, preceded by a visitation from 1 to 3 p.m. Randy Posill, known as Mort, age 65, of Central City, passed away peacefully on Tuesday, December 27th, at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Randy worked at FMC Link Belt and the local laborers Union 43. He is a member of the Midnight Riders. Randy loved the club rides and his strong bond with his fellow brothers. Service will be held in Central City at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service on Tuesday, January 3rd from 3.30 to 4 p.m. with visitation to follow from 4 to 7 p.m. Celebration of Life will be held Saturday, January 7th from 10 a.m. until whenever at Someplace Else Bar in North Buena Vista, Iowa. Martha Ann Kerslake of Lisbon, born Martha Ann Beat, passed away in their home on Monday, December 19th. Visitation 4 to 8 p.m. Friday, January 6th at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service, Mount Vernon. Funeral service 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 7th at Tipton Bible Church, burial in Lisbon Cemetery. Martha enjoyed flowers, plants, history, reading, and spending time with children and grandchildren. And Wandeline Marie O'Connor, age 87, of Mount Vernon, beloved mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother, passed away peacefully on December 26th, surrounded by family at the Southeast Iowa Regional Hospice House in West Burlington, Iowa. Visitation 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday, January 7th, at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service in Mount Vernon. Memorial service to follow beginning at 2 p.m. Burial to take place at a later date. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service in Mount Vernon is caring for Wandeline's family. Turning to the sports page, the final score, the Music City Bowl, Iowa 21, Kentucky 0. Pickin' and grinning. Behind a pair of defensive gems, Hawkeyes avenged January 1st loss to Kentucky on December 31st by John Stepp of the Gazette in Nashville. Moments after Coper Dijon downed a Tory Taylor punt on the Kentucky 2-yard line, the theme to the Avengers movie series resonated from the Iowa band at western corner of Nissan Stadium's Lower Bowl. It practically was a theme song for the Hawkeyes' performance Saturday against Kentucky, too. Iowa avenged its Citrus Bowl loss to Kentucky at the start of the 2022 calendar year with a 21-0 victory in the Music City Bowl to close the 2022 calendar year on a much higher note. Really happy for our guys, and especially our seniors, Iowa coach Kirk Ferentz said. What a way to send them off. After a stalemate in the first quarter, the Hawkeyes broke through with three touchdowns to pull away from the Wildcats. Two of the touchdowns happened 11 seconds apart, and they both involved players making their first career starts. Iowa quarterback Joe Labas, who started after Spencer Petras' injury and Alex Padilla's departure, connected with tight end Luke Lachey for a 15-yard touchdown reception, the first of Labas' collegiate career. It followed a 27-yard Sam Laporta reception in which Laporta broke several tackles before finally being brought down. You told me it's only 27 yards, Laporta said to reporters. That's crazy to me because I felt like I was running for like 20 seconds, like backyard football almost. Just don't let one guy bring you down. Then on the first play of the next drive, Iowa safety Xavier Nwankapa picked off Kentucky's Destin Wade and returned it for a touchdown in the former five-star recruit's first start. Cooper Dijon follows suit later in the first half, picking off Wade and returning it 14 yards for a touchdown. Dijon now has three pick sixes this season. 
The only Iowa player to catch more touchdowns in 2022 than the defensive back Dijon is Lachey, who caught his fourth touchdown Saturday. It was one of several impactful plays for Dijon, who also had a 34-yard punt return and downed a punt on the Kentucky two-yard line. The sophomore was voted Music City Bowl MVP. Winning MVP, I think it's more of a team award, Dijon said, because without these guys on defense, I can't do what I was able to do. Even when excluding Dijon in Wakampa's big plays, Iowa's defense held the shorthanded Kentucky offense to hardly any production. Kentucky's rushing attack, which was without its top two running backs because of an opt-out and a transfer, had 68 yards while averaging 2.1 yards per carry. Wade, who earned his first career start after Will Levis opted out, was 16 of 30 for 98 yards with two interceptions and no touchdowns. The farthest the Wildcats advanced offensively was to the Iowa 36-yard line. The 21-point cushion gave Iowa enough comfort to play Laporta a series at quarterback after working as the emergency quarterback in pre-bowl practices. I've been in the huddle for probably a couple thousand play calls, Laporta said. It's just a little different when you're giving the play call, not receiving it. Labas was 14 of 24 for 139 yards with one touchdown and no interceptions. Joe Labas might be as valuable as Cooper, Ferentz said, referencing the game's MVP, just in the fact that he didn't make any critical mistakes out there, and that's easier said than done. Iowa did not gain much traction on the ground, averaging 2.8 yards per carry. The leading rusher was true freshman Jazian Patterson with 23 yards. The Hawkeyes' 21-0 victory was despite not having any third-down conversions. Iowa won today by being Iowa, said Kentucky coach Mark Stoops, who is an Iowa alumnus. Ferentz tied Joe Paterno for the most bowl wins as a Big Ten head coach with 10. The bowl win improves Iowa's 2022 record to 8-5. Excluding the shortened 2020 season, Iowa has won at least eight games in seven straight seasons. It also marks the last game for Iowa's senior class, which includes Laporta, linebacker Jack Campbell, and other key contributors. You should have seen me coming off the field, Laporta said. I was crying like a little baby. Glad to go out on top. And Mark, Mike Hloss writes, So much goodness for Hawks in KO of Kentucky in Nashville. Saturday was such a great day for Iowa football, yet it was terribly sad. The awful part was the news Jack Campbell's grandfather died late Friday night here, the victim of a vehicle pedestrian accident. William Smith Jr. of Waterloo, 76, was pronounced deceased at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Campbell wasn't told about his grandfather until after his team's 21-0 Music City Bowl win over Kentucky. His parents wanted his mind and spirit to be free to focus on his last game with Iowa. He was the soul of the 2022 Hawkeyes as a talent and leader, and as usual, he led them in tackles, 10, one of them a quarterback sack. The rest of this is trivial in comparison, but it clearly wasn't trivial to the participants. Iowa did all it could to have reasonably wanted at Nissan Stadium and had a dominant victory to carry into its offseason. In some statistical ways, this was like Iowa's lackluster 7-3 season opening win over South Dakota State. The defense outscored the offense in that one, too, but Iowa put up two safeties then. In this contest, it was two interception returns for touchdowns, hammers. As he was in the season opener when he punted 10 times for a 47.9-yard average, Torrey Taylor was magnificent. His eight kicks averaged 48.2 yards. He put four of them inside the Kentucky 10 and two others inside the 15. Game changer, all game. I don't know if I've seen sharper than what I saw today, Ferentz said. He was on it, just on it, every time. That did so much for the Hawkeyes to keep the field tilted. It was prologue for Taylor's postgame announcement that makes the 2023 Iowa team instantly better. Though he'll be 26 next July and surely would have had a chance to earn one of the NFL's 32 punting jobs, Taylor is returning for another season as a Hawkeye. It's going to be a special year, he said. I really think this team can go far and I just want to be part of it.
so the newer kids on Iowa's block will have the gray beard from Australia to lean on again next fall. Some of the newer guys made victory easier than it normally might have been on a day with one offensive score. Hello, Xavier Nwakampa. We'd heard about you for a long time, a blue chipper out of southeast Poconal. The first-year freshman safety put in the special teams work this season and learned behind a core of proven secondary talent, including NFL-bound safety Kevon Merriweather. Merriweather opted out of this game. Wakampa got promoted to first team, and his Iowa career saga got an instant liftoff. He picked off a pass and returned it 52 yards for six points in the second quarter, 11 seconds after Iowa had a quick, clean 42-yard TD drive. Later in that quarter, Cooper Dijon turned a mistake of a Destin Wade pass into a 14-yard pick six of his own, and it was 21-0. Dijon is a sophomore. Dijon and Wonka with a lot of Iowa football left in them. How much drool does that cause in Hawkeye world? We've really got a chance to keep making an impact, keep the Doughboys tradition alive, Wonka said. Dijon was a first-team All-Big Ten player by the media in his first season as a starter. Who gets three pick sixes in a season? Properly, he was voted this game's MVP. I think it's more of a team award, Dijon said, which is what you'd expect from a team guy. But pretty much everyone who saw him play this season here in agreement that this fellow is special. Before his interception score, Dijon returned a punt from the Iowa 6 to the 40. Big. Not long after that, he hustled down to the other end of the field to down a Taylor punt at the Kentucky 2. Big. I'm lucky to have him on the punt unit, Taylor said, and moving forward, I certainly hope he stays. Then there's Joey Lavas. The redshirt freshman took his first college snap at quarterback and 47 more after that. He kept his head and never surrendered the ball. Where Lavas fits with incoming transfer Cade McNamara, getting the QB one spot is unknown, but he'll always have this game. Iowa tight end extraordinaire Sam Laporta called Lavas Broadway Joe. Well, Lavas wasn't a Joe Namath here or Joe Montana or Joe Tysman or Joe Burrow. He took care of business, though. Everybody took care of business this day. Finally, condolences to Jack Campbell and his family. Mr. Smith, I can just tell you from this personal experience, Farron said, had a really big influence on Jack's entire life. I know he was here to cheer on his grandson and was very, very proud of Jack. In Iowa women's basketball, new and improved Illinois hosts number 12, Iowa, by Jeff Linder of the Gazette. In the not-so-distant past, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter had to harp on her team to bring in its own energy when it visited Champaign, Illinois. It said a little about the atmosphere at the State Farm Center, and it said a lot about the state of the Illinois women's basketball team. She doesn't know if the atmosphere has changed. She's well aware of the align I have. New coach, some new players, a whole new buzz. That's a team that's very dangerous, especially at their place, Bluter said. Thus, Bluter has a different project. Convince the Hawkeyes this Illinois team doesn't resemble its recent predecessors. They have the mentality of the old Illinois, Bluter said. This is a new Illinois. The new Illinois, 12-2 overall and 2-1 and in the Big Ten, already has its most wins in a season since 24-15. The Illini welcome number 12 Iowa, who are 11-3, 3-0 today. First-year Illinois coach Shauna Green has engineered an immediate U-turn to a program that hasn't had a winning season in 10 years and hasn't been to the NCAA tournament in 23. Green is a Clinton native whose first head coaching job was at Loris College, 2005-7. She spent the last six years at Dayton, posting a 127-50 mark with four NCAA appearances. The roster consists of four transfers, two of whom came with Green from Dayton. One of the former Flyers, Makira Cook, teams with Adelie McKenzie and Genesis Bryant to form what Bluter called the best backcourt trio in the conference. Illinois is coming off a 79-63 win Thursday at Wisconsin. We've got to be better Sunday, I'll tell you that much, Green said postgame. We want to play fast. We want to play free. Iowa has won six consecutive games and is coming off an 83-68 home victory over Purdue. 
Monica Cisnano reached the 2,000-point plateau one game after Caitlin Clark had done the same. McKenna Warnock, 19 points, and Hannah Stuhlke, first career double-double, played major roles. I'm happy for both McKenna and Hannah, Bluter said. If we get production out of these two, it helps tremendously. Today's game is the first of two straight on the road. Iowa has a showdown with number 14, Michigan, on Saturday, then returns home for games with Northwestern and Penn State on January 11th and January 14th. And that is going to be on the Big Ten Network today at 2 p.m. And the Time Machine section will look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa. Sir Harry, Scottish coal miner turned entertainer, greeted New Year in Cedar Rapids in 1922 by Diana Fan and Langton, correspondent. A hundred years ago, New Year's Eve, 1922, fell on a Sunday. That meant the revelry had to be toned down. Cedar Rapids Police Chief Leonard Morrison and Lynn County Sheriff Thomas Avery announced that public dances and parties would not be tolerated until after the clock strikes 12 and the calendar is turned to 1923. So Cedar Rapidians celebrated a little early, turning out to see comedian and singer Sir Henry Lauder, known as Harry, on December 27, 1922 at the Majestic Theater at A Avenue and 3rd Street Northeast. Louder, who had performed in Cedar Rapids as early as 1914 at Green's Opera House, had worked as a coal miner in Scotland before he became an entertainer. While he was swinging his pick at the coal overhead, he sang, entertaining the other miners. That led him to performing in local concert halls, sometimes earning 50 cents a night. His singing got him a job with a professional company in Lancashire, Scotland, for $7 a week. After 14 years of performing in Scotland, Louder went to London, where his career took off. He performed all over the world, including Iowa, and became one of the highest-paid performers of his time. In 1911, Louder became the first British artist to sell a million records, and in 1919, King George V knighted Louder for his service entertaining troops during World War I. Only hours after Louder and his wife Annie arrived in Cedar Rapids for his 1922 show, they received a Gazette reporter in their private train car. Sir Harry wore his MacLeod kilt with bare knees, socks of wool, and low shoes, the Gazette reported. Around his belt hung his furry sporan, a traditional Scottish Highland pouch that serves as a pocket. His coat of brown wool was open at the neck, showing what appeared to be a regular American shirt with soft collar. Comfort and character were written all over his costume. Asked if he remembered David Smith, the Cedar Rapids Country Club golf pro Louder had met when he performed in Cedar Rapids in 1914, Louder said he did. It turns out Louder knew Smith when they both lived and played golf at a summer resort in Carnoustie, Scotland. Both worked in the same factory after Louder had left coal mining. Louder gave a concert there one year that lost money, and Smith helped him out by paying half the bill. Smith had left Cedar Rapids in 1920 to become the golf pro at Salt Lake, Salt Lake City Country Club, and Louder said he planned on looking him up when his tour went west. Louder, known for his infectious laugh, kilt, tam-o-shanter, briar pipe, and crooked blackthorn walking stick, asked the Gazette reporter to relay a New Year's message to Cedar Rapidians. Joy be yours this festive tide, may all your cares and sorrows slide. Away and far and crumpled up, may ye have a brimming cup. O happiness and comfy days, this is my wish with thee, friends, always. Louder, who toured the States 22 times in his career, visited Iowa City in March 1927 and took in a basketball game at the new Iowa Fieldhouse. You know that was the first basketball game I have ever seen, and it was a very strenuous game, he said. They must have their hearts tested by a physician to play such a game. I never heard so much shouting at players. He explained there was little shouting at games in Scotland. The singer made several appearances before large audiences at the Majestic and the Shrine Temple in Cedar Rapids and would find time while in the city to visit an old friend, the Reverend R.J. Campbell of Grace Episcopal Church. 
Louder talked to Gazette reporter Naomi Doble on the day of a February 17, 1930 performance at the Shrine Temple. Louder talked to her from over the top of the newspaper he was reading while lying in his bed at the Hotel Montrose. Doble reported she found Louder in blue and gray striped pajamas hidden almost to the shoulder by fluffy blue and white woolen blankets. He then talked about how our Scots in thrift growing up in a family of seven children and starting to work when he was 12. Louder died February 26, 1950. I suppose a man can't go on forever, although I'd be perfectly willing to, he said before his death. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 1st, 2023. I have been your reader, Sharon Feltudo, reading to you as most of the time from my kitchen table in Coralville. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We welcome your comments, and thank you for listening. Thank you.